Before we get started, just I, I thought I'd go over this before we had a confession, make sure we're in fellowship, because once I read this to you, you'll probably get out of fellowship. A couple of th- news items came across my desk today, and the first two or three are all somewhat related. The first is an article out of a Baptist uh, Baptist press online source that talks about the fact that what's happening in Sweden right now is that they are on the verge of making it illegal for pastors to talk against homosexuality. Uh, he, the author of this writes, Now liberal Sweden is about to take a giant leap toward reforming and shaping the behavior of some of its citizens. Those who are about to incur the wrath of the Swedish government are not the sexually immoral, they are conservative evangelical Christians who dare to insult homosexuals. And what could be the greatest threat to religious liberty in Europe since the days when the Roman Catholic Church had a stranglehold on philosophical and theological thought, the Riksdag, the Sweden's parliament, appears as if it is about to muzzle the nation's pastors. Sweden already has a law that prohibits the ver- verbal abuse and agitation of racial and ethnic minorities. But a draft bill passed by 56% of the nation's lawmakers in May and expected to be finalized in January would make pastors who declare homosexuality immoral susceptible to criminal charges and prison terms of up to four years. The law might forbid even the recitation of Roman Catholic catechism that notes the sinfulness of homosexual behavior according to lawmakers. Now, this is important to recognize this trend that's going on. It's not just in the U.S., it's, it's uh, worldwide, especially in Europe and in Canada. And this fits with part of what we've studied in, in the series on Genesis related to the institution of marriage. And part of the reason we've gotten into this trap, I think, is because over the last 20 or 30 years, we've made a mistake in diluting the purpose of marriage. We talk about marriage as a relationship. But biblically, marriage is not a relationship. You can have a relationship with a friend. You can have a relationship with a dog. You can have all kinds of relationships, and that doesn't make it a marriage. But once you define marriage as a relationship, then you can start qualifying any relationship as a marriage, which is where we're headed. And there are some groups that are pushing for defining marriage and not only between uh, people of the same sex, but also uh, multiple partners. So you can have 20, 30, 40 wives or husbands or multiple husbands and multiple wives. Once you define it as watered down to a relationship, you start having problems. You dilute and destroy the divine institutions. And once you start diluting and destroying the divine institutions, then society begins to to break down, and this is part of the agenda of a number of people on the liberal left in not only the U.S., but around the world. The same kind of thing has been going on among, uh, among those on our north in Canada. Another article references a decision made by one Hugh Owens of Regina in Saskatchewan, in June of 1997, placed an ad in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix newspaper during Gay Pride Week. And in that ad, and this, he's a Christian, 
In that ad, he just placed several Bible verses from Romans 1, Leviticus, 1 Corinthians, which indicated that homosexuality was a sin. Underneath, he had a picture of two men holding hands and then the universal symbol of prohibition, the circle with the line through it. And this was he was sued in court by three homosexuals, and they uh, considered this to be a call for death to homosexuals. They completely distorted the meaning of the whole thing, and eventually he was uh, fined and found guilty. And now there are there's a move even in Canada to prohibit even pastors from making certain statements. And what had happened in his case, which is an interesting twist, is he his claim was, well, what about free speech? And they said, well, free speech guarantees the freedom to express your opinions. But once you start quoting Bible verses, you're claiming to have absolute truth. And now you're no longer expressing an opinion. You're expressing absolute truth, and we can't allow that. And this, we have to understand that the people who are doing this, for example, are like this one lawmaker up there by the name of Burnaby Svend Robinson, member of parliament. Throughout his career, he's demanded the deletion of God from the charter. He's accused the Royal Canadian Mounted Police of brutality. He heckled Ronald Reagan's address to parliament, and he has branded Israel a terrorist state. But most tellingly, throughout his 25-year crusade for gay rights, he has liberally branded his opponents personally as hate mongers and homophobes. See, there is a truth to the old saying that birds of a feather flock together. And there's a reason why people who take a certain position on uh, same-sex marriage also take other political positions because it's part of an overall mindset that rejects the authority of God. And the agenda here is not simply to legalize or have the ability to have uh, certain legal rights recognized for purposes of wills, purposes of health care, things like that. It is an agenda to do away with the teaching of the Word of God that says that certain kinds of behavior are sin. Now, on the other hand, we have to recognize that homosexuality really isn't any more uh, specialist sin than than, uh, mental attitude sins, than other sorts of perversion, than even uh, adultery or sexual immorality outside of marriage. The reason it is a sin is because all sexual acts outside of marriage are prohibited by the Word of God because the purpose of marriage is more than having a relationship. It's more than having a friend or a romantic involvement. We have to go back to the purpose of marriage in Genesis chapter 1, when God, or Genesis 2, when God created a man and woman. He created them as uh, in his image, and he created the woman to be a helper to the man in achieving the divinely given responsibility of the male. And they are to come together in marriage as a corporation to achieve and to produce, to produce offspring, to train and develop those offspring in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to teach them establishment principles so that they can in turn be a witness for God in the angelic conflict. The purpose for marriage isn't so you can have someone to uh, keep your feet warm on a cold night 
It's not to have someone to snuggle up with in bed. It's not to have someone to go to the movies with or go out to dinner with. It's not someone to have a romantic relationship with. It is to engage in a corporate partnership for the purpose of achieving together the God's design and plan for what you are to create as image bearers in His life. And see, if you come along and you adopt the the, the view of marriage that undergirds the uh, homosexual agenda, what you've done is you have diluted the whole concept of marriage. You've distorted it and you've, distru- and you've, you've twisted it out of shape and you make it just another relationship. Well, then what's wrong with recognizing this? And this is where they're going. So it is, uh, at, at its very core, an assault on the absolutes of God's Word. And make no mistake about it, that's the ultimate agenda. Just like years ago when you started having the anti... Whatever you think about smoking, doesn't matter. The, initially, all they wanted was a non-smoking section of the restaurant. Then it became a smoking section of the restaurant. Notice how it shifted. Then you couldn't smoke on airplanes. Then, you know, and it gradually got to the point where now in some states you can't smoke anywhere. In some places like the People's Republic of Cambridge up there in Massachusetts, you can't even smoke in your own car. You can't smoke on the street. See, that was their agenda all along. Their agenda really doesn't have anything to do with even health. It's that I don't like you're doing something that, that uh, offends me, so you can't do it, and we're going to use the government to browbeat everybody. Same thing with seat belts. I don't care what you think about seat belts. It's a fine and safe thing to wear seat belts. But it's not the government's responsibility to mandate that I, I be safe. Before long, the government becomes our grandmother, and they take care of everything for us, and we don't think or assume responsibility. So the agenda in most of these different movements is not the isolated, tiny thing they start off with, but they usually have a much broader, larger agenda, and they just go after it incrementally. And that's what we see in the, um, the homosexual thing. Now, there's one other article I had today that's germane to our study of Genesis, and that is a report on World Net Daily that the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, that's sort of an oxymoron, I think, is planning a lawsuit over intelligent design. Intelligent design is the view that, that there is scientific evidence that all of creation originated or was created by uh, someone who has remarkable intelligence. It is not a theological or Christian position, per se, but it is a view that there has to be a creator of some sort who is an intelligent designer in order to have an intelligent creation. And the Dover School Board in Dover, Pennsylvania, has, uh, has voted 6-3 to three this last October to add the teaching of intelligent design to its ninth grade biology curriculum. Without identifying who the designer might be, the theory of intelligent design says that complexity and order of the universe and mankind suggests the action of an intelligent cause rather than random chance. And so now the ACLU is going after them. So every now and then I just like to bring out some of these contemporary events that are relevant to what we're studying in Genesis. So many people have the idea that you study Genesis. Well, that just happened thousands of years ago. It has no bearing on anything today. And it has bearing on everything today. It shapes how we as believers need to look at, evaluate, 
and critically think about the things around us. Well, before we get into the Word this evening, let's uh, take a few moments to open in prayer, a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are the God of history and the God who is moving history toward an ultimate destiny, a destiny where there will be a resolution of evil and a destiny where your character will be honored and glorified. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for our civilian and military leaders. We pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance. We pray for our troops over in Afghanistan and Iraq and other hot spots. We pray that you would... Uh, give their leaders wisdom in planning strategy and tactics that they might uh, be able to engage and destroy the enemy. Father, above all, we pray that you would preserve our freedom so that we might be able to continue to worship you freely, to proclaim the gospel, to witness to those around us, and to uh, support missionaries who take the gospel to other parts of the world. Father, we pray for us as we study your word this evening that we might be able to focus, concentrate, Study your word that we might, uh, under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, take in your word that it might be profitable for our spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're studying Abraham as we've gone through the book of Genesis. And some of you have gone through more tapes, others less tapes. Some of you have been uh, up to speed pretty much coming here on uh, Thursday night up to this point. And tonight we are going to just review uh, Abraham to some degree to make sure everybody's sort of on the, on the same sheet of music and up to date. So we'll go back and take a few uh, slides to focus on what we've learned so far about Abraham. First point of review has to do with chronology. Chronology, when did Abraham live? Even among conservatives, there's a little bit of a controversy, but let me lay out what I believe to be the biblically sound uh, basis for Abraham's life. Here's a timeline of the patriarchs. The patriarchs is a technical term for the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, To give us an orientation on this timeline, we'll put a cross on here, which shows the time of Christ. Not 0 B.C., but actually the crucifixion was about 33 A.D., Christ was born about 4 to 5 B.C. We're not concerned with that, though. We'll put a mark in here, black line, for 1,000 B.C. Now, the temple, that is Solomon's temple, was dedicated in 966 B.C. We can be fairly certain of that date. Temple was dedicated 966 B.C. As a result of that, we know from the Scriptures that the Exodus occurred 480 years prior to the dedication of the Temple. So that gives us a pretty solid date for the Exodus, 1446 B.C. We also know that the Exodus took place 
430 years after Jacob, along with about 70 souls, entered into Egypt. This was, took place at the end of the book of Genesis. So that places the time of Jacob's entry into Egypt, about 1876 B.C. The other thing that we know from this, by comparing the lifespans of Isaac and, and the grandfather Abraham, we can come up with a pretty sure date of when they were born. Isaac was born about 2066 B.C., and Abraham would have been born 2166 B.C. 2166 B.C. Just about 400 years after the Noahic flood. 400 years. So there haven't been that many generations. Nevertheless, because they were still living to at least two, approximately 200 years of age, there would still have been a large population because you would have had five to six generations or maybe seven generations living at the same time, whereas today we might have three or four at the same time. Just think if everybody who had been born since 1800 was still alive. That gives you some idea of how it would multiply uh, the population. So the earth was fairly, fairly full even at eight, the time of Abraham's, Abraham's birth. So first point of review is chronology that locks us into our, into our time period. So we're at, uh, by the time Abram is called, he is about 70 years old. So this would be a little after 2100 BC. Now who's his family? This is what's described at the end of chapter 11. The verse reads, now these are the records of Terah. Terah was his father. The word for records there is the Hebrew word toledot. Toledot, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. It really doesn't mean record. It, some translations translate it as genealogy. The best idea is the concept of toledot means this is the records of or this is what happened to. And it comes at the end of a section. For example, you have uh, from Genesis 1-1 to 2-3, you have the creation of the heavens and the earth. And then verse 4 of chapter 2 reads, this is, the, this is the Toledot of the heavens and the earth. This is what happened after God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, so you have the story of the, the uh, fall and then the judgment on the fall. Then Genesis 5-1 says, this is the Toledot of Adam, or this is what happened to Adam and his descendants. And so Genesis 5 has the descendants of Cain, the descendants of, of Seth, down to Noah. Genesis 6-9 starts off, this is the Toledot, or this is what happened to Noah. And so you have what happens to Noah and the flood in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. Chapter 10 starts off with the next division, the fourth or fifth division, actually, of the book, the, the history of the Toledot of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is what happened to the three sons of Noah. And then 11.10, Genesis 11.10, has our next Toledot. This is the Toledot of Shem. This is what happened to the descendants of Shem. And that's just a brief section from 11.10 down through 11.27. It's the second shortest subdivision of the book. The shortest is the Toledot of Ishmael, which is one verse. God didn't have a whole lot to say about Ishmael. He was focusing on the Jews, not 
Ishmael, my, that should upset a few of, the, of our Islamic friends. They always say that it was Ishmael that got the blessing. Ishmael that Abram took up on Moriah. It was Ishmael that uh, was the important figure, not Isaac. However, the Bible just says, well, this is the, what happened to the descendants of Ishmael. Last one verse and moves on. Genesis 11.27 comes to Terah. There's, interestingly, there's no, this is what happened to the descendants of Abraham. You would think that. But this is what happened to the descendants of Terah. Terah is viewed as the father of the family, although it is Abram who is the father of the Jews. Now, these are the records, or this is what happened to the descendants of Terah. Terah became the father of Avram, Nehor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. We'll skip a verse. Avram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren, she had no child. That's the whole point of those verses. Sarah didn't have any children. You know, we can look at that, and we can pick it apart and look at it for interesting historical facts and features and family relationships, but the point that the Holy Spirit wants to make is the key point for the whole section of Abram's life is Sarah couldn't have any children the natural way. God is the one who's going to interfere and bring about a supernatural birth through a, through a uh, one and only unique child, call, also called in the Septuagint a monogenase. He's a type of Christ, a unique child, and that is Isaac. It is a miraculously born, that in the physical sense, a miraculously born Race, And that is the point. Sarai was barren and had no child, so God had to enter in. I've done a study in the past of barren women in the Scriptures. There's only six barren women in the Scriptures. And then you have, and they're all types of the Virgin Mary. And the point is that the womb is dead, but it's God who brings life where there's death. And that's the thrust of this, is it takes a miraculous act of God to overcome the consequences of sin. Man is born spiritually dead, and the only way to have eternal life is through regeneration, and it is God who brings that about, not man. Now, to get a picture of the, of the family tree, so to speak, of Terah, Terah marries someone. We don't know who she is. Her name is never given. He has one wife. And through that wife, he has three sons, Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Then he has another wife, and from her, he has a daughter, Sarai. Sarai later marries her half-brother, Avram. So when Abram tells, tells the Egyptians that, well, she's my sister, it's a half-lie. Haran marries someone, we don't know who it is that he marries, and he has two daughters and a son, Milcah, Izcah, and Lot. Milcah marries her uncle Nahor. Haran dies at a somewhat early age, and it is up to Avram to raise Lot. And so Lot tags along with him until we get to uh, about the end of chapter 14, when they have to separate. So this gives us the family tree. It's sort of the like a scorecard. We know who the players are in the upcoming narratives in chapters 15 down through 23. 
Now, one of the most important things that we have to do is to recognize the purpose that God has for including this story about Abram. Why is Abram in here? What's going on? You have, uh, of all the figures in the Old Testament, I would argue that Abram is the most important because of what he is used to depict in the New Testament. What we see at the time of Abram is that the whole world is in a state of rebellion. We've gone through the events of the Noahic Flood, and we've reduced the human race down to eight people. And the three sons of Noah and their wives began to procreate and spread throughout the earth. And as they procreate and spread out, and they were having more than just the two or three children mentioned there in Genesis 10 and 11 in the Table of Nations, they are repopulating the earth. But there seems to be this this memory, this racial memory of this horrible judgment of the flood. And we can't imagine what that must have been like to have lived through that cataclysmic judgment. That would be like uh, camping out at the base of Mount St. Helens through, through uh, a thousand of them and being protected by God. But nevertheless, you would see thousands of these volcanoes plus the floods and storms and tidal waves and tsunamis and everything else going on around you while you're protected and encapsulated within this little box. And you've got 100-foot waves tipping you and turning you and everything else, and yet God preserves you. So it was not just a nice little float on the water for about a year. They had a tremendous thing because uh, in the subsequent generations, there seems to be this this, uh, deep-seated fear of storms, of thunder, of lightning, you know, that's the, the, the thunder god, the storm gods are the horrible gods of the, of these various pantheons that develop in the post, uh, post-flood environment. But the nations go in rebellion against God and at the Tower of Babel they seek to build this, this mountain or this pedestal and actually it's a, has a temple at, at its top where they hope to somehow avoid being destroyed in any future judgment. So they're, they're, it's a theological statement. They are in rebellion against God, and they are, as it were, shaking their fist at God. And so at this point, God decides to no longer work through the, the, the nations as a whole. He's not going to work through the whole human race. He's going to call out one individual, and he is going to restrict himself to working through that one individual, and that is Abram. Now, what he's going to do through Abram is to call out almost a counterculture movement through a unique people. And instead of, for example, in the church age, God's called out the church, and we are sent to the world to communicate the gospel. What God was doing in the ancient world was calling out a special people, Israel, and he was going to give them a piece of property that sat right on top of the crossroads of the world. All the trade routes in the ancient world went right through Israel. And he was going to set up a kingdom on the earth. That was the the long-term plan. Of course, that doesn't come into effect until uh, they take the land under Joshua. But the plan is to establish a kingdom on the earth with a law that is given directly by God that will be a almost paradise on earth, as much as it can be in a fallen environment, And as people came from all over the earth, they would see how things ought to be done in Israel, caravanners and travelers, and they would see this environment and say, what makes them so different? They have freedom. 
They're treated as individuals. They have private property. That was almost unknown in other cultures. They have all of these benefits. They have all of this wealth. What makes it different? And what the Jews would say is, well, it's because of our God. We worship the true God. And so through that means they would be a witness and a light to the nations. However, we know what happened. That is that they disobeyed God and refused to uh, follow the mandates of God. So they never fulfilled that particular mission. And they won't until the millennial kingdom. And in the millennial kingdom, all the nations will go to the mountain of God in Israel to worship. It all it ultimately gets fulfilled uh, at the end. So this is the purpose in Abram's life, is God is going to begin a counter-movement. Satan has had a victory, a tactical victory, not a strategic victory, a tactical victory on the planet so that all of the nations have succumbed to idolatry and they're all in rebellion against God. And God is going to, as it were, establish a fifth column through Abram and his descendants amongst all the nations of the earth. And then through them, he is going to gradually increase his witness He's going to give revelation, and he is ultimately going to send his son, who will be the savior of all of these other people who have rejected him. Now, Abram is then under the fourth point of review. I pointed this out many times. Abram is picked up numerous times in the New Testament to be a picture of certain key doctrines. Now, I think this is very important. God knows that most people don't do very well when it comes to abstract thinking. I would imagine that if I took most of us and I plopped us down in the middle of a second-year philosophy course somewhere, we would all be uh, stretching pretty hard to keep our nose above water, and many of us would probably drown. Abstract thinking is very difficult for most people. And you teach doctrine, you teach theology about God who is invisible. We don't see him. We can't gain empirical knowledge of him. We can't gain rational knowledge of him. We can only learn about him through his revelation. And so it's it's. It's abstract, especially when you get into the New Testament and you have Paul talking about these abstract doctrines of of justification and imputation and propitiation. How in the world can we learn these things? Well, in the infancy of the human race, God taught these doctrines in very concrete ways. We see them typified in events. We see them typified in people. And we see them typified in certain rituals. And we're pretty familiar with those, and we call them types or shadow images. And Adam is a picture used again and again in the New Testament of four things. And it's very important to understand this, because we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we have to let the New Testament tell us how to understand the Old Testament. Now, we're not interpreting the Old Testament in light of the New Testament in a sort of a backwards way, but the New Testament is going to tell us what the emphases are. It's going to expand things a little bit. And what I mean by that is when we get into the New Testament, uh, Abram becomes the picture of justification by faith alone at salvation, phase one. This is developed in the whole chapter of Romans chapter 4, and it's used again in Galatians 3, 6 through 14. Abram becomes the picture of justification by faith. And in those passages particularly Romans uh, 4, there is a reference to a passage in Genesis. Genesis, very famous passage, 
one we'll study many times, Genesis chapter 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him as righteousness. Now that becomes a picture of justification and imputation. But it didn't happen historically in, at the beginning of chapter 15. Because that would mean that Abram didn't become a believer until Genesis 15. The Hebrew tense of the verb there is a perfect tense. Now, perfect tense generally has the idea uh, of completed action. And so it could be understood as a simple past or it could be understood as a as like an English perfect, that this had already happened. And that's the idea there. It's a reminder that the blessing that God has given him in multiple descendants, that's the promise of the first five verses, is really based on the fact that Abram had already believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And this lays the groundwork for helping us to understand that the that we're not saved on the basis of anything we are, anything we have. You're not saved because you did something right. You're not saved because you were smart enough to figure out the gospel. You were saved because you possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imputation. This is the doctrine, of, the historic doctrine of justification by faith alone, and you would not believe how few people are teaching this today. So we'll spend a lot of time developing that because this is fundamental to understanding Abram. He is the picture of justification imputation. He's also the picture of a second kind of justification. A second kind of justification. You say, well, what do you mean a second kind of justification? Well, in James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, it talks about Abram being justified when he took his son Isaac to sacrifice him on Moriah. Well, wait a minute. That happens in Genesis 21 near the end of Abram's life when, when Isaac was probably you know, 20. He could have been 30 years of age. He was at least a, a late adolescent, if not a young adult, by the time that happened. And Abram is, is consequently much older. He's 135, 140 years of age, maybe, 100, maybe as much as 150. So Abram is much older, much more mature in life. And so this justification by faith that James talks about is not the same justification that Paul's talking about. So it is a justification before men. It is a demonstration in life of all that has happened as a result of that imputation of righteousness, that God, as it were, plants a seed. Now, I'm not being metaphysical here. I'm just using this as a little bit of an analogy. God plants a seed, and as you grow as a believer, rather than simply having positional righteousness, you develop capacity righteousness and experiential righteousness. And if you grow and mature as a believer the way Abraham did, then when you become a mature adult, your justification is manifest before men. And that's what James is talking about is James two, twenty one to twenty three. So Abram is a picture of a believer who has advanced to spiritual maturity. That's the second way he's used. The third way he's used is he is a picture of how the believer advances to spiritual maturity. Hebrews eleven, eight to twelve, he is a picture of the believer who walks by means of faith. That we do not walk by sight, which is empiricism or rationalism. We walk, that is, we live the Christian life by means of faith. That is, trust in God's Word. So, 
Abram is a picture of what it means to walk by means of faith. Now, his spiritual life had slightly different dynamics than our spiritual life. He's not baptized by the Holy Spirit. He's not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's not filled with the Holy Spirit. But he does have promises of God, and he activates those promises the same way we do, by mixing them with faith. And so he knows the promises of God, and he applies that to his day-to-day advance. So he is a picture of what it means to walk by faith, and consequently he's also a picture of what happens when he fails to walk by faith. So in Abraham, we see a believer who fails. And when Abraham fails, he fails miserably. And just like in your life and my life, when we get out of fellowship, we make certain decisions that really come back to haunt us later on in life. And we'll see that with Abraham. Fourth thing is he's a... He's used in the New Testament because of the Abrahamic covenant, that contract that God entered into with him. Now, we have to realize, we talk about covenant, and everybody talks about covenant. Covenant is a contract. It is a legal arrangement between two parties. And God has so structured reality that, it's, it, it, as we'll get into later on talking about the angelic conflict, there is this legal dimension that God has laid over all of reality, angelic creation as well as human creation, and God is willing to lower himself, as it were, to the level of a creature and bind himself legally and contractually to certain obligations. And that, that is unique to Christianity. Nobody else does. No, that God does that in any other religion. And that shows that we can depend upon God. It shows that he's faithful, he's dependable. We can rely upon him in whatever circumstances to do what he said he would do because he bound himself, in most cases in a unilateral contract, he bound himself to this kind of legal obligation demand. So these eight biblical covenants are usually divided into Gentile covenants and Jewish covenants. The first covenant took place in the Garden of Eden. It's, you get a synopsis in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, when God lays down the stipulations for mankind. Later in Hosea, there's a comment that uh, a challenge to the Jews that don't break uh, the covenant like Adam did. Then there's the fall, and there's a revision to this covenant. Everything that God tells Adam and has to do with the serpent, the wife, and Adam. Everything there is a modification of what went on in Genesis chapter 1. And then there's the failure of man and the flood judgment. And then there's another covenant. This is with Noah. And again, it's a modification of the same stipulations that you have in the previous two covenants. And the Noahic covenant is still in effect today. It is still in effect today. That means all the stipulations are in effect today. That means eating of meat is not optional. Veg- vegetarians, what do they call them now? Vegans? Vegans? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, the, you know, the, you don't want to eat meat. Why? God authorized and mandated the eating of, of meat in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 9 for a reason. The environment had changed. Man had changed as a result of sin. So now it's important nutritionally to eat meat. Also capital punishment. The sign of the covenant was a rainbow. So as long as you see a rainbow, instead of thinking just in terms of God's not going to destroy the earth by water again, think in terms of the other components of the contract. 
as long as you see the rainbow, you know that you're authorized to take the life of Scott Peterson. Bring it right home today. This is the basis for it. And you're going to hear a lot of people in coming weeks, well, he shouldn't, you know, we, we should just incarcerate all kinds of arguments for why you shouldn't um, uh, have capital punishment. And other people will say, well, it's not really a deterrent. It may be if it was practiced consistently the way it ought to be, where it, it was done in an efficient manner in a short amount of time, then it might be a deterrent. But when it's going to be 10 or 12 years, 15 years in some cases before there's an execution and it's not certain and you have all this other stuff, it, certainly it's not going to act as a deterrent. But as long as you see that rainbow, it's God's, it's a reminder that God has given this, this contract and authorized, and authorized capital punishment. And then you'll hear people say, well, it may not be, it may not be applied correctly. They, they may make mistakes. Well, don't you think omniscient God knew they would make mistakes? Sure. God knew man would apply it wrongly, unfairly, and unjustly. Nevertheless, God in his omniscience still thought that man could handle it and delegated that responsibility. So if God delegated the responsibility, it's our job to carry it out. Then we have the Jewish covenants. These are unconditional and permanent covenants. First is the Abrahamic covenant, and this is the basis for all of them. It, it includes within it, encapsulated within the Abrahamic covenant, the basis for the other three unconditional covenants. The Abrahamic covenant focuses on a promise to give a specific piece of real estate to Israel, not some place in South America, not some place down in Africa, not some place elsewhere in the Middle East. See, all of those attempts were tried in previous years. Uh, back in the late 19th century when you had the rise of modern Zionism, the movement to give the Jews a homeland, there were attempts to find a place for them in South America, Africa, Asia, any place but uh, there in their national homeland that God had given them. God gave them that piece of real estate and promised that it would be theirs uh, forever. He also promised that there would be uh, a seed for Abraham, not just seeds multiple, that there would be uh, numberless like the sands of the seashore and the stars of the sky, but there would be one Seed, and that is applied by Paul in Galatians to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that through that seed there would be a blessing to all mankind. So every time you think about the Davidic covenant, I mean the Abrahamic covenant, you need to think in terms of land seed blessing. Land seed blessing. The land covenant is expanded in Deuteronomy 30, where it is specified that they will have this land, and if they disobey God, they'll be taken out of the land, but they will be brought back. And it is clear from the Scripture, and I don't know whether we'll do it here in, in Genesis when we get there, or whether we will do it in Revelation, we'll probably do it both. It is clear from the Scriptures and from the prophets that there are only going to be two returns to the land. And these two returns to the land that the Old Testament promises are a return from all the corners of the earth. You can't apply that to, return, to the return from Babylon because that was only the return in 535 B.C. Jews only returned from Babylon. They were scattered to Greece. They were scattered to uh, Asia Minor. They were scattered to Egypt. But only, a, only the, the only Jews that returned to the land were those from Babylon. But these prophecies identify the fact that Jews are going to return from 
the, all the nations, all the nations, not just one or two, but from all the nations. And there would only be two. And in those two returns, the first return would be a return in unbelief. And it would involve stages. And the second return would be a return in belief. Now, this is why you have a biblical basis for saying that the return of Jews to Israel today is the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because they're only going to return in unbelief one time. That's all the Scripture says. From all the nations. And that's exactly what we've been seeing since the first Aliyah at the end of the 19th century. Jews are returning to Israel. So you're not going to see the modern state of Israel you know, defeated and all the Jews run out of the land and then they're going to come back again and get run out again. You know, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says two returns, one in unbelief, and you have to have a return in unbelief to have the tribulation temple, to have the apostate nation in the land at the beginning of the tribulation, to have the Antichrist sign a peace treaty with the nation Israel. There's got to be a nation Israel for him to sign a peace treaty so they can start the Daniel's 70 weeks, the last seven-year period of the tribulation. So that's the first return. Second return is when the nation finally believes and accepts Jesus as Messiah at the end of the tribulation. And this is when Jesus returns and the elect, that is the elect Jews, the saved Jews, are going to be gathered from the four corners of the earth and brought back to the land at the time of the second coming. And it is the land that is will be the, the, the basis for the kingdom, the location of the kingdom forever. The Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7 expands the seed promise that this is going to culminate in a in a eternal king, one that will never leave the throne. That of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the blessing paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant is expanded in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, which is a covenant made between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that covenant is instigated at the second coming of Christ. Okay, just another way to look at it, I decided to put together a new chart today, just playing around. Land seed blessing. We've got a land covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And all three covenants are fulfilled at the same time. And that is when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. They are not fulfilled until then, but they will all be literally fulfilled at that time. So Abram is important for the Abrahamic covenant. Now Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 gives us that uh, synopsis of what's involved in that covenant. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country. Literally, it's halak. It means go or walk. It's the cal imperative. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I think it's interesting that of the elements in this covenant, the, most, the, the first thing that's mentioned is the land. It's mentioned again and again and again. Israel has a right to that land. You can't... You know, when, when I go to Kiev in January, I think it's the 16th, that first Sunday that I'm gone, uh, Tommy Ice is going to come down from, from uh, Dallas, and because what he has to say is so important, we're going to have a special two-hour session that Sunday night. And he's going to start at 6.30 and go till 8.30, and we'll have a little break in the middle or something, but uh, we'll figure that out as we get there. But I'm going to have Tommy speak on the new anti-Semitism 
Uh, he's been asked to write a book on this by Harvest House, and he's done a tremendous amount of research, and it's cloaked in an anti-Zionism. Oh, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I'm not so sure they have a right to the land. And as a result of that, there's a tremendous hostility to Israel. And what's happening at the UN, what's happening in, uh, in Europe, that is this cloaked or veiled anti-Semitism is, is uh, every bit as scary as what was going on in Germany in the 1920s. So you don't want to miss that. They have been given a land. And then in verse 2, God said to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be. It's an imperative. It's not a result clause. You'll be, you will be a blessing. It is a mandate. You will. It's a command to be a blessing. And then God concludes by saying, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him. That is, roar a strong curse, those who treat you lightly. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that the Abrahamic covenant then becomes the foundation for blessing to all nations. And that comes through the seed. And it comes out of the land. So you can't come in and do some sort of surgical strike on the Abrahamic covenant and cut away the land or cut away the seed or cut away the blessing promise. It hangs together in a... Uh, in, in a unified whole, just like you can't go into your mortgage contract and just extract three or four paragraphs because you like what they say and you don't like what other parts of it says. It's a whole contract. It's a unified, uh, unified whole. Where are we? Well, that gets part of our review, gets us up to date to Genesis 12.3. I'm going to go ahead and stop here because we need to treat verses 4 through 9 as a unified whole. And we'll come back next week on Tuesday night and we will start with Genesis 12.4 where we start to see how Abraham's life is a picture of the spiritual life of the believer in the church age. Now remember the dynamics are a little different. But it is a picture, it's a type of what goes on in the believer's life. And to understand what's going on here is really important. It just shows how God again and again and again deals with us in the same way. And what happens in the Old Testament is not, uh, not contradictory to what's going on in the New Testament. So we'll come back and begin in verse 4 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for uh, the way you work in history and that we can examine this and we can look at your word and that you are consistent with your covenants. And that becomes the framework for not only understanding what happened in the ancient world, but enables us to understand what's going on and our world around us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this evening and that as we continue this study, it will be a, a motivation to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.